We're going to finish up our series called Identity, Knowing Who I Am in Christ with a message called I Am Equipped. When I joined the army, the recruiting slogan was be all that you can be. And the commercials of the slogan painted an image of pushing yourself beyond your limits and, and well, just being all that you could be in life. It was a long running and a successful campaign, but everything eventually changes, even recruiting slogans. So in about 2002 or late 2001, the Army recruiting slogan changed to an army of one. And it painted a picture of an individual and what one individual could accomplish. It drew upon the ideal, the American ideal of rugged individualism and the ability to do it all yourself. It was a relatively short-lived slogan because in reality it wasn't really very Army-ish. And here's what I mean. The Army isn't successful... Because of rugged individualism. The United States Army isn't successful because there are thousands of one-man armies running around accomplishing individual missions. The U.S. Army is successful because the many individuals make up one army. At every level, the army is composed of teams, not merely individuals. The army is composed of several divisions. Each division is composed of several brigades. Each brigade is composed of several battalions. Each battalion is composed of several companies. Each company is composed of several uh, platoons. Each platoon is composed of several squads. And each squad is is composed of two teams. So you see, while the individual is there, he is a part of something bigger than himself. He's not an army of one. He is an important part. Of the army as a whole. And I thought of that while I was studying the message for today. There are so many times as Christians that we seek to be an army of one. We are very individualistic culture. And we have brought that mindset into Christianity. We have developed a, a rugged individualistic mindset in relation to the church. And it gives us the idea that we really don't need the church unless we want the church. It gives us the idea that we really have no responsibility to the church. The church is there to meet my needs when and if I want it. And if not, I have no other responsibilities there. This mindset is very biblically wrong. As with soldiers, believers are a part of something that is bigger than just us. Rather than being an army of one, we are part of one army, the church. And it is in this context that God has equipped us to make a difference. How this works is what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 is where we're starting. That is page 897 if you have your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Paul says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The title of the message this morning is, I am equipped. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we want our lives to be lived for your glory. We want the world to see Jesus in us. We want to experience your power at work in us, through us, and for us. We want to be a part of the mission that you have for us to accomplish. Father, we do live in a culture that is very individualistic. It is so easy for us to bring that mindset to the church. Today, let your word and your spirit challenge this in our lives. Help us to see our great need to be committed, not just as an individual that's committed to Christ, but as a part of a church that's committed to Christ. Father, let your Holy Spirit take your word and let it be living and active in our hearts and our minds today. Father, let your Holy Spirit knock down any mental strongholds that we have erected to keep us from embracing certain parts of your truth. And let our every thought be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. Father, let your Holy Spirit empower your word to be a light that would shine the darkness of our hearts and minds. That we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let your Holy Spirit empower your word to be a sword that would convict us deeply. Bring us to a place of genuine repentance. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and empower the word to be a fire that would burn away the, the junk of our lives. That we would be pure vessels for Jesus. We need you today to be at work in our lives. We need you to make your word living and active. We need you to change us, to save us, to sanctify us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to let us know that you're here, that you're at work in us, that you love us and that you care for us. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. It is in the precious and powerful name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen. That you may be seated. Ephesians 4 begins with Paul calling for unity within the local church. The unity is motivated by a desire to walk worthy of the calling with which we have received. To walk worthy, Paul says in the early parts, means that we must be lowly and gentle and humble and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit within the bonds of of peace. Our, our work in doing this, we work for unity in this way because we are all part of one body. We have been baptized by one spirit and we serve one Lord and we have one father. All that we have in common, it causes us to lay aside the differences that we have and to work for unity. Now, working for unity, it indicates that we are actually working together. Now, unity is much more than simply not arguing. True unity means that we are laying aside our differences and we are focusing on what we have in common and we're working together for a common cause. Our common cause is the success of the gospel. 
working together for the success of the gospel, it, again, it means that we are actively working together. We aren't 70 people going in 70 different directions as an army of one. Instead, we are 70 people working together with one mind and with one goal as one army. And our one goal is to make the gospel known, to make Jesus Christ known. Paul said that let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, that's a statement right there, isn't it? What I like is that Paul defines for us what it means to walk worthy the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Conduct worthy of the gospel is that we work together as though we had one mind with one goal to make the gospel known in our community. This is what the church is meant to be. This is what Jesus intends for each and every believer to be a part of. And to ensure that what we do is, or we work together is successful, Jesus equips believers to do something through His church for His glory and for the advancement of the gospel. That's what He says. Paul writes in verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. Now, the basic idea here is that the risen and victorious Christ has conquered death and he has given gifts to those that are a part of his kingdom. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been given a gift by Jesus Christ to make a difference in his church and through the community that your church is a part of. All for His glory. Now, the way that Jesus equips us is different. We are not all equipped in the same way. The Bible gives us a great variety of spiritual gifts. There are probably three main passages that talk about different spiritual gifts. Write these down. Take time this week to look at them. To get an idea of the variety of ways in which Jesus equips us. And, And with each one... There's something significant to notice. Romans 1 or Romans 12, I probably should have started that in, in verse 1. Romans 12, 1 is a familiar passage. That we're, not to, that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of Christ. Verses 1 and 2 are significant because verses 3 through 8 deal spiritual gifts and how we use those gifts within the church for the glory of God. The honest truth is, one of the ways that we demonstrate we are a a living sacrifice is by finding and using our spiritual gifts within the church for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel in our community. One of the ways that we show that our mind has been renewed and we are not conformed to this world is that we reject the rugged, individualistic mindset and we are a part of His church and we're working in that church to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. 1 Corinthians 12 emphasizes the fact that while there is a great variety of spiritual gifts, none are really more important than the others. We are all part of of one body. And each part has a different function and a different focus of what they're to do, but all are significant. Peter talks about the idea of being stewards of the manifold grace of God. And the idea of a steward is that we are not our own. 
that these gifts are not ours. It is Jesus who has given us these gifts to accomplish His will. And with stewardship is the idea of accountability. One day... Each one of us will stand before the Lord and he will ask us what we have done with the gifts he has given us as stewards. That is a part of what Jesus will do in our lives. We must be faithful to use the gifts that he has given us. There is such an incredible diversity in the gifts. And there is such an incredible diversity in the way that each person uses the gifts. But the key thought I want to get across right now is that every person has at least one spiritual gift. Each and every one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every one of us has some gift that Jesus has given us to be used within his church, in the community, for his glory. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To me, this is a a huge truth for us to understand. All gifts are given for the profit of all. No spiritual gift is given to elevate me or you above anyone else. No spiritual gift is given... To enable me to be an army of one and not need you. Whatever spiritual gift Jesus Christ has given me, He has given me for the profit of the church as a whole. Whatever spiritual gift Jesus Christ has given to you, He has given it to you for the profit of the church as a whole. That we would work together. right? Because nobody has all the gifts that are necessary to reach all of the people that need to be reached. Instead, what's intended to happen is that my gifts would complement your gifts as we work together. So we work together for the common goal, taking the gospel to the nations, taking the gospel to to our community. Think about Joseph and Esther, which we talked about last week. Joseph and Esther, God worked in their lives in in great ways. God brought Joseph to the place where he was second in command of Egypt. God brought Esther to the place where she was queen over a powerful nation. But God did not do that for them as individuals. What he did in them as individuals was done for the profit of others. Joseph was brought to that place of prominence in Egypt so that through him God could work to save all of the people of Israel. Esther was brought to that place of prominence, not so that she could parade around and say, look at me, but so that God could work through her and deliver the people of Israel that were in the nation. Anything God does in you, through you, and for you is never just for us. We are never the end of what God is trying to do. We are always a part of the whole. Any gift God has given us, any work that He does is for All of us to profit from it together. Accomplishing the bigger mission is what we're here for. We are not to be rugged, individualist Christians. We are not an army of one. We are a part of something bigger than our lives. We are a part of the church of the living God. A church that Jesus has said the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against. And we are meant to be a part of the bigger picture and the bigger mission. And to do that, it absolutely requires us to do our part. In order for this church to accomplish its mission, for us to reach our community for Jesus Christ, we all must do our part. Paul emphasizes this in verses 11 and 12. And he, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He lists some specific gifts that were given. These are often referred to as, as leadership gifts. Those who are leading and equipping the church. But notice the purpose of the apostles, the prophets, the, pa- the evangelists, the pastor, teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. Do you see the idea that each one is to do a part? Right? The, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teachers, they do a part in equipping the saints. The saints then do their part by doing the work of the ministry. Growing up, I never had any concept of this. Growing up, the concept I had was that the pastor was the minister. But what I find as I read Scripture is that we're, we're all ministers. Right? Ministry isn't preaching. Ministry isn't being a missionary. Ministry, very simply, is serving Jesus by serving others. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing. Each and every believer in Jesus Christ are ministers. And our job is to serve Jesus by serving others. And we each have our unique role to play. My idea growing up was that the, the, really the pastor did everything. He did all the preaching. He did all the teaching. He did all the, the going and visiting. He, he did everything that needed to be done. And the people, people just sort of showed up and they, they listened and they amened. And then they went home. But when you read Scripture, that's not the way that it is. In in Scripture, everybody has a part to play. The ministry of a church is far more than any one person can accomplish. The ministry of the church is far more than than any two or three people can accomplish. For the church to, to be all that it's supposed to be, all of us have to do our parts. We all have to work together. And if our part is to equip others, then we do it. If our part is to do the ministry, then we do it. But whatever our part is, we must do it. And the mindset of the church in America, I think, often can be shown with this, this picture here. What, what this calls the consumer church is the church we have often seen in America. Church is a dispenser of religious goods and services. People come to be fed, to have their needs met through quality program, to have the professionals teach their children about God. Their saying is, I go to church. But that's different than what this calls the missional church. It's a body of people sent on mission who gather in community for worship, community encouragement, from teaching from the Word in addition to what they are all self-feeding themselves through the week. These people say, I am the church. I go to church. That is common American mindset. I am the church is the biblical model. That's what we see in verses 11 and 12. In 11 and 12, each one 
does the role that Jesus Christ has given them. They are seeking to fulfill their purpose in the church. And what's important to understand is that within the church, there's a balance that we are to maintain. Every one of us are meant to consume and contribute to the church. We, we need the church for encouragement. We need the church for strength. We need the church to gather to worship the Lord together. We need to pray together to pray for one another. We need the teaching and the equipping that comes from the word at the church. That is consuming. We, we all need that. At the same time, we are all meant to serve. We are all meant to give. We are all meant to gather. We are all meant to be a part of everything that the church is and does so that it can accomplish its mission. That is contributing. And what often happens is there are too many Christians today who just consume and never contribute. They go to church. They receive teaching, encouragement, and all of that. But they never actually give back to the church. They never actually use their gifts, their abilities, their time, their talents, or anything else to help the church accomplish the mission that Jesus has given to it. Everyone is important. Everyone has a part to play. And when... One isn't playing their part. The church cannot function as it should. I love this passage. Paul says, I thank my God concerning you. He is thankful for the church, for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ. That you are enriched in everything by him and all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul went to Corinth, he preached the gospel. He told them about a Savior who died for their sins and rose again and offered salvation for all who would repent and believe. The people repented. The people believed. And as they repented and as they believed, Jesus Christ worked through that. And he confirmed Paul's message by giving them gifts to work to make a difference in the city of Corinth. They lived in a city of great wickedness, great spiritual darkness, great pagan thought. And yet, when they believed in Jesus, they were given an enablement. They were equipped to go out into that spiritual darkness to take the gospel to people. And as they did what they felt Jesus was equipping them to do, they saw people saved. And it, and it reminded them, really and truly, it's real. What Paul said is true because of the change I've seen in my life. And as I go out and I bear witness of this, Jesus works through me to accomplish His will in the Corinthians. And I like what Paul said. They were enriched in everything. Utterance and knowledge. Testimony of Christ was confirmed. So they came short in no gift. That means is everything that God intended the church at Corinth to do, God had equipped the people in Corinth to accomplish. See, there was, there was no shortage in Corinth of equipped people to do the ministry. Whatever God wanted the church at Corinth to accomplish, He brought people in and He gave them a spiritual gift that was for the profit of all that enabled the church to accomplish that mission in Corinth. What was true in Corinth, I believe, is true in every church 
in America, every church in the world. There is no shortage of gifted people to do what the church needs to do. The shortage is in gifted people using their gifts within the church, for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus intends our church to be and do within this body of believers, we have everything we need. Whatever it is we need to reach out to, whoever it is we need to disciple, whoever it is we need to go and visit, whatever ministry we are to have, the gifts in this room are sufficient to accomplish every single item on Jesus' to-do list for Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. There is not a need to hire someone. There is not a need to bring someone in. There is a need for you and I to say, this is what God has equipped me to do. And I am going to do that within the church for the glory of God, the advancement of the gospel in my community. Every one of us are meant to be a part of what the church does. Every one of us are necessary to do everything that needs to be done. What often happens is the church, it gets out of balance. Because the, the, old, the old saying is, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's pretty common. The reality is when 20% of the people do 80% of the work, the church is way out of balance. And what happens, there's one of two things that happens, possibly both. One is, important things don't get done. There are things that the church should be doing, could be doing, Jesus wants us to be doing, but we can't do because there's no one to do it. So important things, because what the church does, whether it's the services, singing, the preaching, the teaching, ministering to the community, the food pantry, our children's ministry, nursery, all of that. Everything we do is eternally significant because it's done for Jesus Christ. So when, when you and I, when we won't do our job, we won't do what Jesus has equipped us to do, something eternally significant does not get done. The other result is that those 20%, they work themselves to death. They burn themselves out. And before long, because nobody will do that forever. I mean, at some point, people just get overwhelmed. They've done more than they should because other people aren't there. They're taking up somebody else's slack. And so they quit what they've been doing. And now... What wasn't being done isn't being done, and what was being done isn't being done. And so more eternally significant things. Maybe a third option, I think. I think a third thing is, when people aren't doing their thing, they become gripey, and they become nitpicky. Those who serve are busy. They've got stuff to do. They don't have time to gripe about the music. They don't have time to gripe about the seating. They don't have time to gripe about whether it's a hymn or whether it's a new song. They don't have time to gripe 
about the things that people who aren't serving have all this time to think about, all this time to gripe about. In all honesty, I would say if I was going to meddle, which I'm not a meddling preacher, but if I was, I would say if when you leave service, your mind is full of all the things that went wrong, it's not because God has given you the gift of criticism. It's because you're doing nothing in service to Jesus Christ, but consuming. You are not in any noticeable way contributing to the health, the ministry, the life of the church. The need isn't for people to listen to your criticisms. The need is for you to get off your death and do something. Find your gift and use it. A church that is out of balance is ill-equipped. It limps, it struggles, it closes. Reading a book right now, do you know that somewhere between 3,500, 4,000 churches close every year in America? Not the world, America. There were like 12 Free Will Baptist churches that closed in Oklahoma last year. There have already been churches that have closed this year. There are more churches that will close before the year is out. In most cases, it's not because the church had reached its lifespan and it was time for it to die. In most cases, it's because the 20% died and the 80% still wouldn't step up and do what needed to be done. And when there's nobody that will serve and nobody that will give, there's not a church that takes place. You close the doors, you sell the building, you move to a church down the street and you continue to consume without contributing and you wait there till it dies. That's what happens when the church is out of balance. But when the church is, is firing on all cylinders, when the church is doing what Jesus wants it to do, when I'm doing my part, you're doing your part, amazing things happen. Paul describes some of these amazing things in these next few verses. But in all of them, as we come to this and we talk to it in just a minute, what I want you to understand is, as we do what Jesus has equipped us to do, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in the church. And the church is then able to make a difference in the community. So the, the central truth I want you to understand today is that Jesus has equipped you to make a difference in your church and in your community. See, the church, there is, no, there is no nebulous entity called the church that does things. The church should be more friendly. The church should be more evangelistic. The church should have more kids' programs. The church should have more disciple-making classes. The church should have... Well, who is the church... It's doing this. The reality, whatever a church is, simply a reflection of what the people are. If our church is friendly, it's because we are a friendly people. If our church is not friendly, it's because we're not friendly people. If the church is evangelistic, it's because we are evangelistic people. If the church is complacent, it's because we are complacent people. Whatever the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church is. It is that way because of you and I. We are the church. Whatever the church is or ever will be, it rests in us being equipped by Jesus and making the difference He intends for us to make. What difference does it make 
when we all find and use our spiritual gifts, do what Jesus intended for us to do. First, the church is built up. The last of verse 12, it says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Edify, it does, it means to, to build up. And in this particular context, the word edify, it doesn't mean to build the church in numbers, but to build the church more spiritually. It helps the church mature. A reality of serving Jesus is those who don't serve never mature. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how much of your Bible you read and how much you know. If you don't ever take what you know and put it into practice by finding and using your spiritual gifts, you are stagnated at an immature state and you will never grow beyond that until you use your spiritual gift. And a church filled with people who won't serve will be a church that's filled with immaturity. But that's not what's meant to happen. What's meant to happen is I use my spiritual gift and as I do, it helps you to grow spiritually. And then you use your spiritual gift. And as you use your spiritual gift, it encourages me and it helps me to grow spiritually. And there's this mutual edification, strengthening and building up that goes on. So my ministry helps you. Your ministry helps me. And it's just a continual process that goes on. So Jesus has equipped me to make a difference in my church and my community. And as we all do this. It just benefits everybody. We all benefit when we all serve. A second response, um, way that we make a difference is the church is unified. Verse 13 says, we all come to the unity of faith. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. We are never all going to be alike. But uniformity doesn't mean there can't be unity. A lack of uniformity doesn't mean there can't be unity. So we all come to the unity of the faith means that we've all grown. And we've been able to see that what we're trying to accomplish together. The message, the mission of Jesus Christ, it is it is worth far more than what separates us. Because we have different opinions on any number of issues. Music, some standards, politics. And in the world, those things are huge. But in the church, those things pale in comparison to what unifies us. We have one Lord and one Savior, one Father, and we have one Spirit. And we have one mission, success of the gospel. And that, that pales, that makes, that makes everything else pale in comparison. We, we lay aside our differences and we willingly work together to accomplish the mission that God has given us. And this comes again as we serve. Because, you know, as I mentioned, the reality is those who row the boat don't have time to rock the boat. Unity comes because we're all so busy doing what needs to be done. We don't have time to pick each other apart. We don't have time to nitpick and judge. We, there's just stuff that needs to be done. Ain't nobody got time to sit and grop and complain about everything that needs to be done. There's just stuff that I've got to get on. There's unity in the church. The church becomes Christ-centered. It says, then we come to the knowledge, the Son of God, perfect man. And I love this last phrase. To the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. As we all serve, we all grow. And as we all grow, we become more and more like Jesus. And the more of us there are that are growing in our Christ-likeness, the greater the church will focus on the things Jesus would focus on. 
the greater the church will have the attitude of Jesus, the greater the church will have the priorities of Jesus, the greater the church will have the compassion, the kindness, the love, the mercy of Jesus. As we all serve and as we all grow, Jesus just naturally begins to be reflected in our character, in our nature, in our priorities, in our attitudes, in our actions, and in our reactions. And when our character reflects Jesus, our church's character will reflect Jesus. And when our priorities reflect Jesus, the church's priorities will reflect Jesus. And when we react in a way that reflects Jesus, the church will react in a way that reflects Jesus. So as we all do our part, the church becomes increasingly Christ-centered. Everything rises and falls on the message and the mission of Jesus Christ. Lesser things can fall by the wayside. But Jesus is all. And He is all that matters. The church is Christ-like. But when Jesus is central, we act like Jesus. There is a, a saying supposedly attributed to uh, Gandhi. And he said, I, I like your Jesus, but not your Christians. Because your Christians are so very unlike your Jesus. Now, I don't know if that's a true statement. I don't know if he really said it. And I know in many cases, unbelievers have a false idea of who Jesus was and what he was like. I, I get that. Because Jesus wasn't just like this, hey, you're okay. I'm okay. You love me? I love you too, buddy. You're fine. That wasn't Jesus. He was all go and sin no more. Take up your cross and follow me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Oh, you don't like it? I guess you're going to go away. Bye-bye. I mean, he was, he was pretty strict. But despite the strictness of Jesus, the Bible repeatedly tells us that unbelievers, sinners, came to hear what he had to say. He was the friend of sinners. I wonder, would the church today be considered a friend of sinners? Do unbelievers, when they have problems and issues, do they, they seek out the church, do they seek out Christians for help? Or do they, do they just expect that if they were to come confessing their struggles, we would lord over them like self-righteous, judgmental jerks? And I wonder if, if they think we would lord over them like self-righteous, judgmental jerks, what are the odds that's really the way we've acted? What are the odds our actions and interactions with people reflect the, the spirit of the age more than the spirit of Christ? The church has to deal with things. The church has to stake stands on moral issues and biblical issues and doctrinal issues. But Jesus did too. And yet he was still able to minister to people who were very unlike him. Church that's Christ-like. It's a church that, that welcomes people very unlike us. People who don't dress up for Sunday service. I went to our state meeting last year, and we had a uh, missions conference. And at the missions conference, there were two guys that were brought in who were raised free will Baptists, but were planning non-free will Baptist churches. And they still believe free will Baptist doctrines. So they were trying to recruit them back in. And it was funny because 
I, I think I don't think I had a jacket on, but I was dressed in a tie and slacks. And most free will Baptists were dressed in ties and slacks and jackets. And these guys, they weren't like that. They had short sleeve shirts on. They had tattoos. One had this big metal bracelet with or leather bracelet with spiky things on it, and you could just tell they had been out of free will Baptist culture for a while. Probably they had taken the long way around to getting to Jesus. And it was funny because even though they were raised in our churches and they knew what we believed and they were thinking about becoming one of us, few was the free will Baptist who ventured to friend the two guys at the table who were not like us. And these guys were Christians. They were pastors. How much more? Can it be like that with just a, an unbeliever? Nobody talks, nobody visits, nobody cares. And so they look for help elsewhere. When everyone does their part, the church grows. We become like Jesus and we treat people in the way that Jesus would treat them. The church is stable. Verse 14, it says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine and trickery of men, Beginning and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. Have you ever noticed that kids can be easily deceived? When Kelly's brother was uh, nine, ten years old, we were coming from Woodward, and out there on 412, there's this thing. I don't know what it is, but it kind of looks like an old lighthouse in the middle of a pasture. And he said, "What is that?" I said, "It's a lighthouse." He said, "I thought lighthouses were on." Like the ocean and by the sea. I said, well, they are. I said, that was on the, that, that's on the edge of what used to be the Oklahoma Ocean. And he said, what? I said, yeah, the ocean used to come right here. I said, what, just a few years ago that all this was underwater. But there was a lighthouse to keep people from being crushed on the, on the waves or on the shores. Man, he was fascinated by it. He just kept asking questions, really straining my imagination to make details up. And he bought it. He came, we came here and he went over, we went over to Joe and Sharon's house and he went up to Jacob Watson and was telling him about the Oklahoma Ocean. Jacob was like, I don't have any idea what he's talking about. But, but he was, he was convinced. Little, I couldn't convince him of that now. He's like 21 years old. If I were to tell him that now, he'd know I was making it up. When people are young, they're easy to convince. When people are immature believers, they're easy to convince of anything. Anyone who's been a Christian longer than them probably knows more than them. Therefore, if Jesus is the only way, well, I believe that. Well, Jesus is the way. Oh, I guess that makes sense now. Well, Jesus is just okay. Oh, okay, I get that too. So, new believers are easily tossed about by whatever book they read or new person comes to them to tell them what the truth is. But a church that everybody's doing their spot, the new believers can come in and they can find a stable place. They can hear consistency about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Why the Bible is significant. How we are to live. And as they are repeatedly taught the same things over and over and over again, they become stabilized. They become grounded in the truth. They, can, they learn to take what's taught and compare it to Scripture and say, well, that's not right or that is right. A church that's out of balance... Make no mistake, is a church that will be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Immature believers tend to believe whatever's most convincing on that particular day. A church filled with immature believers will flip-flop on things over and over 
and over again. The church will be stable. And the church will speak to issues that matter. Speaking the truth in love. See, the, the church has to speak to moral issues. The church has to speak to doctrinal issues. We have to proclaim the truth boldly, clearly, and accurately. A stable church has people that will do that. A stable church is one where the truth is taught, but how the truth is taught matters because it must be taught in love. It must be taught in a way that communicates that while this truth is significant and while this truth matters, I'm not saying you're a moron because you disagree. I'm not bellering at you and telling you, you know, all these hateful things if you disagree. We have to speak the truth, but we have to speak it in love. A stable church has these things going on. And the state, the church is stable. When each one of us knows that we're equipped by Jesus and we're using that to help the church. And then the final one is the church is effective. It says, but as this happens, the church will grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom the, the whole body, joined and knit together by what the joint supplies... According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. A natural outflow of everybody doing what they're supposed to do is the church is going to grow. The edifying here refers to spiritual and numeric growth. The, the growth of the body refers to reaching out, edification refers to growing up. Right? As the old song, deep and wide. A church where everybody serves is both deep and wide. It's deep in their knowledge of Christ. It's deep in the grace of God. It's deep in the love of Jesus. But it's wide in its reach. It's not me, my four, and no more. It's not I'm happy with the way things are. It's not I would hate to be a part of a growing church because I really always want to know everybody. It's deep because I understand the grace and the goodness of the gospel. It's wide because I really want everybody else to understand who Jesus is and what he can do in their life as well. A church where everyone serves is a church that is making a difference in their communities. It is a church that's making a difference in the hearts and the minds and the lives of those who come here and those who live near. That is what impact the church is to have. We are to help one another. We are to help those out there. But to do this, it takes all of us doing our part. Jesus equipped you to make a difference in your church and in your community. Jesus equipped me to make a difference in my church and in my community. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. But together, we can make a massive impact on the world around us if we'll just do it. Two quick things before we close. First, I do want you to understand, see this as, this is what Jesus expects His church to be like. This is what Jesus expects His church to be. And in order for His church to be that way, you and I must be that way. That's what He expects from you. That's what He expects from me. A second truth that we have to see is that this is a continual process. 
The church never actually arrives. The church is just constantly changing. Because if we're going deep, then, then things are changing in our lives. If we're going wide, then we're bringing in people who haven't gone deep yet. So in the church, a church that is effectively reaching its community, there are going to be people that are sold out for the cause of Christ, actively working in the church, going through. There are going to be those who are brand new, trying to understand all that the Bible says and what they need to live like and how they need to grow. There are even going to be people there who are not yet believers, who are trying to decide if this Jesus really does have an answer for them or a help in their lives. The church never arrives. We just constantly go through a purification growth process. You and I, we don't arrive. We just constantly keep going. So what I want to ask you today is, you are equipped. But are you making a difference? I mean, are, are you doing what you've been equipped to do? Because the reality is you're supposed to be. I don't know what your equipping is. But whatever it is. The Savior, the Lord that you proclaim, absolutely expects that you will do it as a part of His church in reaching out to your community. Now, it doesn't have to be this church. But it does need to be a church. Every believer is meant to belong. You are meant to be a part of a local body of believers that you will commit yourself to and that you will serve Jesus as a part of that local body. That you will give up being an army of one and be a part of one army, the church. You will use your spiritual gifts to advance the gospel, to glorify Christ to make an eternal difference in someone's life. Are you doing what Jesus has equipped you to do? Let's stand.